Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, when the legislative session was interrupted because of the virus, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, talk about the fact that the showcase issue that uh, the legislators would have to deal with coming back would be the uh, dealing with the deep cuts in the budget that were required because state revenues had been so badly affected by the virus. Uh, And, of course, that's still an issue. The session is expected to end Friday, and legislators are still scrambling to pass a budget uh, before then. Uh, But the issue that's emerged even more powerfully than I think many people expected it would is the call for a hate crimes bill, Georgia being one of just four states that doesn't have hate crimes legislation, We know that the House passed hate crimes last session. It was a Republican-sponsored bill. Uh, Representative Chuck F. Strachan introduced it. It passed by a narrow margin last session. It was sent back over to the Senate for them to consider it. The Senate didn't act on it at all. Uh, And so it came back this session, and here we are in the final days. The Senate has the bill right now. They have their own version of it, and that's how we're going to begin our conversation Uh, today with our panel talking about where the hate crimes bill stands with the session about to end at the end of the week. To do that, we're joined, as we always are on Tuesdays, by uh, AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Thank you for being here, Tamar. Glad to see you or to hear you. Always good to be here. Patricia Murphy is uh, with us as well. Patricia, of course, is a, uh, a an op-ed writer, a columnist whose uh, writing appears most recently. We have a column from you, Patricia, in Roll Call that we're going to talk about a little later in the show. You've been writing for in USA Today as well. Your column is syndicated. And, of course, in your background, you worked on the dark side of politics. You were on the Hill working for uh, uh, Senator Max Cleland and, uh, before that, the legendary Sam Nunn. Thank you for joining us, too, Patricia. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for helping me with my second life. It feels better this way. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. And we're really thrilled to be able to welcome to the show today Andrea Young. Andrea Young, the director of the ACLU of Georgia. She, of course, has a deep history of work in the civil rights movement. Andrea, I talked about Patricia being on the Hill. I think back in the 80s, you worked for Senator Edward Kennedy, as a legislative yes, assistant, assistant, am I right? Did you work on the Martin Luther King holiday bill with him? That, yes, that's correct. That's correct. And I also was chief of staff to Cynthia McKinney in her first term. Yeah. Right. I forgot about yes. that. Yeah. Um, let me, let me, all right. So let's, let me, Tamara, if you could just quickly bring us up to speed. And then Andrea, I really want to mm-hmm. hear where the ACLU mm-hmm. has to say about all this. Mm-hmm. The Senate, let me just set it up briefly. Um, over the weekend, the Senate and the House, there was passionate arguing about this hate crimes measure because the Senate decided over the weekend, or some of the leadership, that they wanted to add to the protections built into the House bill uh, police officers and first responders. And that 
absolutely led to passionate debate. Um, I guess, but now, last night, they pulled that out of the measure. They blinked. What's going on tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, I think it surprised us all. We saw over the weekend as legislators were, were debating this this bill, so much passion, so many tears from, from grown adults, legislators you don't often see crying on, on the floor on both sides talking about um, you know, how, the, how they, you know, on the Democratic side, you see them talking about how police are the ones who perpetrated a lot of these deaths of black, uh, black people of the last couple of weeks. They should not be a protected class in, in this bill. You also see Republicans who feel like they're being targeted, um, being called racist or insensitive um, during this debate when, when they think they're doing the right thing, too. And tensions were high. And then all of a sudden last night, um, you know, by mid-evening, we saw that, that, poof, a lot of these changes have gone away. Um, and, and a new bill unveiled by State Senator Bill Cosworth, an Athens area Republican, um, showed that they were reversing course, that there weren't going to be special protections for, for police officers or, or any special uh, profession, and, and that they'd be moving forward with a bill that it, it looks like Democrats could accept. Andrea, I think to many people um, who, th- who were found it galling that there was an effort to add police officers uh, to protective classes, given that the fresh energy around this bill in many ways was, in fact, violence by police officers right. against uh, uh, black people. Right. Um, tell me about the ACLU and how you've navigated right. your way through right. this measure. Right. Well, it was a um, uh, salt in the wound of, uh, you know, for the protesters who are uh, exercising their First Amendment rights to protest uh, police misconduct and police brutality. Uh, We were, um, we immediately got out a statement in opposition to this uh, because police already have tremendous uh, powers and protections under Georgia law we put out a chart that shows the many offenses that already have an enhanced penalty if they are done against a police officer. So, for example, if that aggravated assault has a three-year mandatory minimum uh, if a police officer is the target of that assault. So this would have been basically triple-dipping uh, on police officers taking uh, from an underlying offense uh, what would have. So there's plenty of adequate uh, protections for police officers. And the only interpretation of this could have been that it was designed to chill uh, uh, the protests uh, that are against police misconduct, because that behavior could have been interpreted particularly, you know, as we saw in Ahmaud Arbery, we have jurisdictions outside of Metro Atlanta that are not concerned about uh, the rights of uh, African-Americans, much less protesters, uh, that would have used this uh, to chill uh, protests. Uh, and to enhance penalties against protesters uh, protesting police misconduct and violence. So uh, uh, before I bring Patricia into the conversation, uh, have your people got word as of, say, late last night, early this morning, as to what it is? Does it feel like this, the Senate version of the bill, Bill Cousard in the Senate, who'd introduced some of these changes, Gave, had a pretty interesting statement. He sounded like he was kind of pleading with the House, essentially saying, we hope 
what we're now doing is going to satisfy uh, the House. It sounds like they were really brushed back hard. Do you now get the sense that this bill is on track so that we'll have hate crimes legislation by Friday? Um, We do get that sense. Uh, The other thing that was important was that data collection was added um, because, you know, Perhaps a more impo- a very important component it would be data collection so that we understand uh, what's happening around the state and where people are being victimized because of their uh, race, religion, sexual orientation, uh, etc. Um, so that was um, that was also added. However, uh, there is now a new bill that has those enhanced protections for police officers called I think the Police Officer Protection Act. So they created an entirely new bill uh, that still has this basically tripling the effect uh, of, you know, an assault or, so, or you know, or whatever um, committed against a police officer. Um, so that is still in play. It hasn't gone away. Yeah, they, they just to be clear about what you're saying is they took the uh, police protections out of 426, the original, what was the House Bill 426, the Senate version of that, and they moved it to uh, uh, HB 838. It's an amendment to that measure, and you're right. It does, in fact, uh, give additional protections to uh, police if they're the victims of various forms of assault against them. Patricia, uh, I use the term brushed back. You know, it does feel like that's what happened here. We know that a week or so ago, in the aftermath of Ahmaud Arbery, in the aftermath of George Floyd, and then accelerated by the killing of Rayshard Brooks. Um, The the passionate about hate crimes uh, protections grew even louder. And the Senate seemed, I think, strikingly out of step this past week. Um, At least that's certainly the way many people interpreted what they were doing the Georgia Chamber, the Metro Chamber, biggest corporations in, in Georgia, we're all saying, get this thing passed. So it feels as if the Senate made a move, realized they couldn't get anywhere, and now they're back to saying, yeah, we do need to pass this. And they're going to pass it now with bipartisan support, apparently. Yes. Well, the call during the recess and after all of the um, – violence in Atlanta and Georgia specifically was to pass a clean hate crimes bill because it is such an, a shortened, uh, heightened, shortened period of time and heightened intensive pressure and a lot of other things on the docket. It was to please pass a clean hate crimes bill so that this can be added uh, to the House legislation and then dispensed with, passed, and then Georgia will join the 46 other states that have these kinds of hate crimes and Georgia can finally sort of join the rest of, uh, of civilized society in having this hate crimes legislation on the books. And then to have language added um, about first responders and police specifically to this bill, I think felt by felt to its supporters, specifically people in the house, that this was an insincere attempt to change it, weigh it down, and to have a message bill instead of a hate crimes bill. And so um, that changed. It turned around very, very quickly and much faster than I think many people believed it would, um, so that the Senate has now gone back to taking that language out and letting this bill be a hate crimes bill rather than a message bill. I do think, though, they needed to keep that police language 
in a separate bill that does have a chance of getting through so that those Republican supporters can feel like um, police were not um, were not left out of this conversation. I think there is a concern on their side that police are in a more dangerous situation, although there are um, many protections, enhanced protections for police officers. Um, they certainly have had a, a hard go of it as well during this time. Um, and so I think it's an attempt to satisfy multiple efforts um, and multiple multiple communities and, and just multiple interests. And it looks like this will finally get a hate crimes bill uh, passed in Georgia. It's worth talking about the November implications of all of this. Um, of course, there, there's a question, first of all, of how much, um, you know, all these protests and this conversation about race in America, how long it can continue, whether it can continue to November, as Democrats are hoping, hand them back the White House, to, you know, potentially control of the Senate in, in Washington, both chambers in, in the Georgia legislature. And, you know, it's important to talk about, you know, in the House, the, the Republican majority here in Georgia has 16 seats. Um, Democrats picked off quite a few in, uh, in 2018, and, and there's more of a fear that, that Democrats could take control of that chamber. In the Senate, which tends to be more conservative, there is more of a cushion for Republicans there. And I think um, that showed as we, you know, as they, they started debating this hate crimes bill, too. Andrea, I want to ask you a question that sounds reductive, but, but I think it's important. Is the passage of a hate crimes measure um, more important as a symbol of Georgia's finally understanding that we need to protect uh, classes of minority people who have been preyed upon in the past, victimized in the past, or is it a truly substantive um, uh, uh, measure that will effect real change moving forward? What's your take on that? Well, I think I think it, it is certainly uh, has taken on a really important symbolism. And the thing that distinguishes uh, this bill is that it would be the first time that protections for members of our LGBTQ community would be recognized in any civil rights law in the state of Georgia. I mean, Georgia needs a comprehensive civil rights act. We do not have one. Um, and there have been some discussions and attempts to do that. Uh, but it's going to take a legislature that's really committed uh, to the equality uh, and belonging of every single person in the state of Georgia. And I think what we saw in the Senate is that we have a large number of people that are still not committed to that. Um, and I think that's, you know, this gets taken down a lot into Democrats and Republicans, but I will tell you the protesters that are there every single day in the state of Georgia, they are angry at everyone. They are angry at Democrats, they are angry at Republicans because the needs of their communities are not being met. We are, people are suffering on so many different levels. Um, and so I think we've got to really not reduce uh, these protests to Democrats versus Republicans, but really about the many, many Georgians whose needs are not met in our communities, even in Atlanta, where, you know, I'll, I'll defend TI and I'll say for me, Atlanta is Wakanda, but it is not Wakanda. Uh, for so many of the people who are unemployed, who are underemployed, and who feel that they are over-policed and treated disrespectfully and hostily uh, by our police department. It's not, you know, George is not Wakanda for people like Ahmaud Arbery who can't jog safely, you know, a few miles from their own home. And so I think that is the question is, is Georgia really going to take seriously 
this question that we all belong. My family's been in Georgia for 10 generations. I just found that out recently. We were, I have direct ancestors who were enslaved in Georgia. So when are we going to be, have the full protection of the law and be full members of this community? And that's what these protests are about. And that's what I think we've got to keep the focus on what the message that's really coming uh, from these young people who are out here day after day after day raising their voices and trying to be heard that this is, they really believe they are fighting for their lives. You know, Andrea, I think you said something, a lot of what you said was really significant. One of the things I immediately picked up on, um, we've talked on this show, as we've discussed systemic racism on this show with some frequency over the last few weeks, one of the things that we've pointed out is that, something you said, uh, for many, many uh, African Americans, uh, Atlanta particularly really is a black mecca. It has been an, it, it is known as, as a place where African Americans can succeed in ways they don't in many other American cities. It also mm-hmm. has the largest income disparity between okay. blacks and whites of any city in the United States. Yeah. 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 No, it's absolutely true. And, you know, some of that is the challenge of being in a state like Georgia that does not expand Medicaid. One, one good news that came out was, uh, HB 1114, which expands Medicaid to six months uh, for uh, postpartum deliveries. You know, we raised and criticized the state legislature for passing an abortion ban when women are dying in childbirth in the state of Georgia. Uh, and so, you know, there's some correction has taken toward that, but Georgia should expand Medicaid. We're in a pandemic uh, and people are losing that don't have health insurance and people who had health insurance are losing it in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, we have a deeply flawed system that is rooted in, you know, a racist history. Patricia, when you hear what Andrea's uh, take is on all of this, um, I'm wondering about um, going back to this hate crimes measure. Um, it, the Senate finally got is getting in line on this, but the disputes over it and the need to elevate the protection of police officers uh, whether it's in the hate crimes bill or in a separate measure, that sends a message too that works that suggests to us that moving forward, any attempt to do something like a civil rights bill in Georgia, the message out of the Senate really is uh, we don't we're not so much there. We don't we got a different uh, 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 perspective on a lot of this. Does that make sense to you, Patricia? What I'm saying. I think it. Yeah, I think it does make sense. And I think the Senate does have a different perspective. I think that the Senate um, is and feels, when you cover it, more conservative than the House. Um, And uh, longtime members uh, from from districts that are not particularly diverse. Um, And I think that when you go around the state, uh, you just can't help but see the disparities. And then when you go into the Capitol, it seems that those conversations are not um, front and center. There are a lot of conversations driven by business interests, a lot of conversations, a lot of participation of lobbyists, um, very little um, conversations um, about these kinds of disparities, except when there is a really bright light shown on it. And I have to say the size of the protests outside of the Capitol during the legislative session 
were very new. And I think that's the type of energy and focus um, that has been happening in state capitals uh, around the country, places like Raleigh. Um, there are there have been weekly protests against the North Carolina legislature for years called Moral Monday protests. I think that Georgia will start to see more activism because this is a very large, diverse, active activist community that has been really disconnected from the state capitol. And the fact that this hate crime legislation hit a speed bump with Rashard Brooks lying at Ebenezer Baptist Church a block away, to me, was, was the visible evidence of how disconnected this conversation is from many Georgians' daily reality. Um, and I think we will see some changes in the faces of the legislators um, over the next few sessions because there's a real disconnect between the conversations happening under the dome and the conversations happening um, around the state. There's two points I want to pick up on. Um, the first, kind of dovetailing off what Patricia just said, um, I think we are going to see some new faces in November. And, and depending on how deep of a you know, if we do see a blue wave, if Republicans are able to hold on to, to one or both chambers, I'm curious to see how much that changes the attitudes going into the 2021 session, if there's enough political will to, to take a, a bigger bite on, on issues like this, or if people see the passage of, of a hate crimes bill as, as enough, you know, we addressed it, let's move on. And I think that's the fear of a lot of these protesters right now. Um, will there be a sustained appetite to do this? Um, a second point I wanted to make was going off something you said earlier, Bill, which is um, something my, my colleague Jim Galloway pointed out in his column last night, which is lost in all of this, perhaps to the benefit of LGBTQ Americans, is, is the fact that, that this hate crime bill does include protections for, for members of the LGBTQ community. Um, it does include protections for sexual orientation and gender identity, which I, I know is something that that uh, gay rights groups here in Georgia are quietly celebrating the fact that, that they aren't in the spotlight. And, and a lot of this has, um, you know, <laughs> led to a, a victory that I think uh, was a little bit under the radar. Yeah. Andrea, I, I, and go we, ahead. Go we, ahead. We might not want to talk about that too much. We don't need to remind them of that right now. So <laughs> <laughs> Andrea, I know, I know we're going to have to, I know we have to lose you in a couple minutes yeah. because I know you have uh, other commitments cool. this morning, but I don't want to let you go without asking you uh, the larger question right now. Um, you're, your heritage is, is, as I said at the beginning, I mean, you're the, you're the daughter of Andrew Young, uh, one of the great leaders of, of the mm -hmm. civil rights movement. Um, you, uh, you worked for the passage of the MLK bill. You worked with Edward Kennedy, a champion of civil rights. So here's my question. From your perspective, are we truly at an inflection point? Are we at a moment where racism and White people like me maybe are suddenly understanding this in a whole new way, and perhaps we're going to get somewhere, or is this like gun violence? Is this like what happens after a school shooting when everybody talks about it and then it disappears? You know, I mean, you know, the, the, I certainly, um, we will, we'll, uh, you know, we'll be doing everything I can to make sure this is a moment that brings about real transformational change. I think, uh, and I, I will say, um, Bill, at the, you know, that I will say maybe not so much you, but certainly your kids and grandkids 
And I think that's, what, <laughs> you know, the difference that we see in, uh, in the crowds is that they are very multiracial. Uh, there are a lot of uh, tend to be younger than us, white kids, uh, also in the streets uh, protesting. Uh, or we, the ACLU made a call for uh, legal observers. We got a thousand people who wanted to be trained. You know, our demographic tends to be wider than, um, although not, you know, we certainly are very diverse uh, as well. Uh, but you just see people bringing water to the protesters, people bringing handmade masks, people, you know, the, the, there's been so, I mean, these are sustained because there's so much support uh, in Metro Atlanta for this work. Uh, and I also think that we have a, that they are tremendously, uh, it's illuminating, even for, um, I will say, you know, middle-class black people raised in respectability politics in Atlanta who went to Spelman and Morehouse and, you know, are very comfortable to see the video of what happened to Rayshard Brooks, you know, a couple miles from my house in Grant Park, uh, to see how people are treated by the police. This is now on video. And I think people find this unacceptable um, that, um, that, that young black men in particular, but not only, uh, are treated in this manner. And I think we're, and what we hear is people saying we've got to have other kinds of resources for conflict resolution in our communities, resources other than someone with a gun. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to hear this call. And now that, uh, you know, now that this call has been made and this genie is kind of out of the bottle, I think this is what will shape the conversation going forward. So before you leave, I, I want to tell you, my 23-year-old daughter, who's home from Brooklyn, sheltering in place with us, has asked me the question, Dad, what's the difference between the protests that you were part of against the war in Vietnam and the civil rights protests of a, of a slightly around the same yeah. time and moving forward, uh, and, and, and what we're going through now? And you just said it. The difference is the anti-war movement of the 60s was a white movement. Uh, when MLK decided to weigh in against the war, he got great blowback from many, many uh, uh, black civil rights leaders around the country. This, the mm -hmm. anti-war movement of, against Vietnam was white. The civil mm -hmm. rights marches primarily mm -hmm. were black. Yeah. The yeah. fact that we are now seeing blacks and whites, as you just pointed out, marching together is yeah. a really fascinating and hopeful development. Very hopeful. And, 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 not, and not just... Uh, I saw a young Hispanic couple out giving out water to the protesters. I mean, there are Asian, you know, people forget Georgia has a significant Asian-American population, South Asian population. And so, you know, Georgia's electorate, you know, as Tamar, you know, has alluded to, it's 40 percent people of color. Um, and so the question is, are, you know, are in November, you know, of course, we're encouraging people to take this energy to the ballot box and vote for people who who really stand for a multicultural Georgia, a Georgia where everyone belongs, a Georgia that is true to, you know, the legacy of, you know, Jimmy Carter and Martin Luther King um, as two sons of the South, you know, who uh, who have fought for human, who stand for human rights all around the world. Can their home finally be a place that's worthy of that vision? Andrea Young. Uh, Andrea, I really appreciate your spending some time with us again. I know you've got to leave us. Will you please come back and talk to us again on the show at some point moving forward? I be, would love to. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I, I'm, I'm glad. All right. 
I want to continue uh, with Patricia Murphy and Tamar Hallerman. Uh, We'll do that, but let's get to a break, and we'll be back with more Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Patricia Murphy and Tamar Hallerman continue with me on this edition of Political Rewind. Hey, Patricia, one of the other things that was interesting about the way the hate crimes bill unfolded in the Senate is that Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor who uh, officially presides over the Senate in that role, uh, he unveiled a series of his own ideas for what the hate crimes bill should include. Data collection was one of them. Um, But we were reminded very quickly that the Senate and the House are two quite different bodies. In the House, when the Speaker, whoever he he or she might be, speaks, the rest of the legislature, at least members of the majority, that same party, fall in line quite often. That's not the way it works in the Senate. The the Senate president, lieutenant governor, uh, is often challenged and undermined by uh, Senate leaders. It was fascinating to watch that dynamic play out, Patricia. Yes. Well, um, yeah, you're so right. Speaker Ralston um, determines everything from the legislative schedule to um, uh, what's going to be on the floor to obviously to committee chairmanships over on the Senate side. You feel like sometimes the committee chairmen decide a lot more, a lot more than uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan. And although he technically has authority over the chamber, um, he really is still kind of the new kid on the block because some of these chairmen have been around for literally decades, um, and they accrue power um, through their longevity, through their relationships. And Duncan simply doesn't have that. Uh, so his, in terms of his. The soft power on the Senate side is really something to deal with. And you you absolutely saw that. Uh, Jeff Duncan was quite frank about what he wanted to see in that bill. And then literally that was not the bill that was put before. And it was it had <laughs> major changes that had nothing to do with anything Jeff Duncan ever said or did. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes you have the feeling the, the lieutenant governors have to learn on the job uh, and the chairman are telling you what your job's going to be. <laughs> so I, felt, I kind of felt for him in a way, um, but this, yeah. this is how it works. Um, and ultimately, though, it was, it, it was the chairman who decided what, it, what the bill would not be in the end. So they made those changes um, and uh, were quite responsive. And I, we are still waiting to hear the behind-the-scenes conversations. Um, but Speaker Ralston passed his hate crimes bill um, last year and has been quite outspoken and was and um, I would be surprised if he didn't made his if he didn't make his uh, plans known um, to the Senate side as well. Sometimes it, it even feels sometimes it feels like Ralston runs the Senate too. <laughs> so. you, you saw his debate, debate really heated up in, in the Senate um, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan really wanting to make his mark on this issue. He kind of pumped the brakes and, and was talking about how he, he saw himself becoming this, this subject matter, matter expert, insisted upon releasing his own bill. Um, he, he sort of got 
um, railroaded a little bit by the Senate chairman. He was kind of forced to accept the, the Senate Republican bill. And, and like Patricia said, we don't quite know the backstory yet about what happened last night with this, um, you know, the, the reversal of, of course, on this, this hate crimes bill. But I'm going to be very curious to see how um, instrumental or not Jeff Duncan was in all of this, um, whether he was really pushing for this, whether he was forced to go along with it at the end of the day because of the momentum in other places. So Yeah, also, um, having covered Washington, um, just the, the type of moves that you can that sometimes happen in a Washington legislative situation, um, committee chairmen will introduce a bill just to prove they could, even if they never had any intention of passing it. So just to let you know who's really in charge. Um, we like to call those press release. I like to call them press release amendments. You know, you can, or a press release bill, you send out the press release to show how ideologically pure you are. You lay down your marker and then you say, see, I, that was my position. All these other people made me change it. I was the stalwart. Yeah, so I look forward to, so, the, to uh, the rest uh, of the story. Um, we will watch a hate crimes bill uh, uh, between now and Friday to see just what emerges from the legislature. Uh, Tamar, uh, uh, Bill Rankin, your colleague at the paper, had quite a story on the front page of the paper this morning. He uh, had an interview with Devin Brosnan, who was the uh, one of the two officers. Brosnan, the first officer on the scene in the Rayshard Brooks incident, uh, he was not the one who fired uh, at and, and killed uh, Rayshard Brooks, um, but he has been charged with a number of uh, uh, felony counts. Um, and um, he gave an interview today. I, I would assume his lawyer thought it would be a good idea for him to get out front of this story to the extent that he could. But one of the questions I think is raised by the conversation, and I urge people to read the, the story. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, it does once again uh, put a spotlight on the way in which Paul Howard, the Fulton County District Attorney, moved so quickly to indict both officers uh, in uh, in this case. And um, there continues to be enormous controversy, con- considering the GBI is still in the midst of its investigation of exactly what happened, uh, considering there's still evidence to be uh, sorted out, and considering that Paul Howard's in a very tough uh, uh, runoff election right now, and he himself is under investigation by the GBI, um, he's facing a lot of scrutiny right now about whether he acted too precipitously. Yeah, exactly. And and so Brosnan has been charged with um, with aggravated assault for standing on Brooks um, and three violations of his oath of office, including failing to render medical aid to, to Richard Brooks. Um, in a timely manner and, and using his foot to kind of keep him down. Um, but, but he's not faced with felony murder like the other officer in that. But, but what was interesting about um, what, what Howard, said about, Howard said about this officer Brosnan is, is he mentioned during his press conference that he was a cooperating witness. And that was something that, that Brosnan said over and over again in his interview with my colleague. I'm not a cooperating it witness. You know, I'm, I'm, I'll tell the truth. I'll, I'll cooperate publicly, but I'm not a cooperating witness for the state. Um, and, and there's been a, a ton of publicity lately just about 
the kind of job that that Howard has been doing as um, as DA and and the authority that state figures have, including Attorney General Chris Carr, to be able to to replace him, especially if he's currently being investigated. And you've seen people like Doug Collins, the congressman who's running for Senate, talking about him being removed from that case. Um, and there's a real question of jurisdiction here as well, because you saw a statement from AG Carr saying he doesn't necessarily have the authority to do that at this point. Yeah, Carr's office says that there are very specific circumstances in which the AG's office can remove a district attorney. Um, The district attorney has to willingly step down or a court has to order that the district attorney be recused for a variety of of reasons that could uh, come to light. Uh, But, you know, Patricia, this is where this becomes a very delicate uh, question. Um, Certainly... There are many, many people who believe that these two officers absolutely deserve to be brought to trial for their uh, actions in the Rayshard Brooks case. And uh, Paul Howard is appealing to those feelings. I get it. At the same time, I don't think anyone wants this to be a railroaded job, a rush to judgment that ends up, uh, in fact, backfiring on the prosecutors. Well, I think that's exactly right. And um, the manner in which the charges are brought and the investigation that went into it can often be a huge um, piece of how uh, the charges are resolved in court. And so if the investigation was not complete, if the evidence was not there, um, it's very hard to build a case. And so in so many instances, um, uh, people who are brought up on charges and in a rushed investigation, those charges do not hold up in court. And then you have somebody who um, who is not held accountable because specifically of the way the charges were brought, not even because of what happened at the scene. Um, and so I think there is real concern, though also that they're, main, that they're with such a fast process was their due process for these officers. And um I think Americans want due process for everyone charged with the crime. And I think that is so much a part of the concern and the frustration and the anger about what's happening to black Americans in police custody is where is the due process? Where are people's rights? Where are people are being literally killed before they're charged with a crime and have never done anything in the first place? And yeah. that just that strikes at the heart of what is unfair to people. And the same way these officers did different things at the scene. Um, And Officer Brosnan was on MSNBC yesterday with his lawyer and spoke specifically about the failing to render aid charge when Officer Brosnan is the officer who administered CPR at the scene. And so um, they raised a number of issues that seemed to really put into question the charges that were brought against this officer in particular. And so um, in the case of Trayvon Martin, um, George Zimmerman is not in jail today because of uh, the case just didn't hold up against him, which was so heartbreaking to so many people. It has to be solid at every step. And the first step has to be as solid as the last step to get a to get a successful conviction. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And then let's turn our attention uh, when we come right back uh, to Washington. Patricia, you have a a column that just dropped in Roll Call uh, talking about the uh, efforts at police reform going on, separate efforts in the House and the Senate. 
Let's take a look at what you have to say in your column and then have a conversation about whether we're really going to see something come out of Washington. What a surprise that would be. This is Political Rewind. AJC senior reporter Tamar Hallerman and uh, Patricia Murphy, columnist uh, for Roll Call USA Today, syndicated uh, broadly. Uh, Patricia, uh, the column of yours that just dropped in Roll Call that I referred to before the break has this lead. I've been haunted by two words since I listened to an audio recording of Rayshard Brooks running from and then being shot in the back by an Atlanta police officer earlier this month. Every time. What are those two words every time referred to? So the audio recording of the of um, Rayshard Brooks being shot afterward, you can hear witnesses just screaming at the police officers saying, why did you do that? That was so that was totally unnecessary. You harassed him for 20 minutes. Why would you shoot him? Um, and then one gentleman says, why, why this happens every time? Why do you do this every time? Um, and he was talking about why are these men, well, we don't know exactly what he's talking about. We can assume, and it certainly was, I think most people believe, why does this keep happening? Why do we keep watching, especially black men being shot um, or being uh, strangled or um, killed um, in in police custody on video why does this keep happening every time and so and this is happening in jurisdictions all over the country and certainly not just in the south in new york and minneapolis um and so it's very clear that this is a problem not that is not regional it is not it doesn't matter with the police officer's age the incidents are all very different um, but there is clearly a through line that there's a problem in police departments. Um, is it with the training? Is it with the amount of stress these officers are under? Is it that some of these are officers who just shouldn't be police officers anymore? And so it's very clear, I think, to most people that there does need to be police reform. I think even police officers would say that there needs to be police reform. And there is broad agreement in the House and Senate now um, that necessary. There are now, uh, there's a bill in the House being voted on this week and a bill in the Senate. Um, these will, uh, they have, they both have majority support in their chambers. Um, and they also have broad areas of agreement. And so uh, my column is to say, um, if, if this Congress is not going to pass police reform at this time with what what protesters have gone through and the black community has gone through and what many police officers are going through. It's an incredibly stressful, difficult time for police officers who are good police officers to show up to work every day. Um, if they're not going to address this now, what are you doing? Um, but it's becoming clear that these two bills um, may, it, it, this may not happen. There is, um, uh, there are signs that Democrats may block the Republicans' effort in the Senate. Um, it, that may be political posturing. That may be a genuine effort to hold this off until after the election. It's just not clear. But to me, it's a great frustration that no sooner, even before the votes are taken, it, it, there's a question of whether this process can even be debated at all. Um, and that's a real frustration as somebody who covers Congress. It's, um, it tends to be one of the, the worst parts of Congress and the 
them the best and and they may they may continue forward anyway but my column was to say could you please do something i think that's all anybody wants is something. yeah the way i think Mara, you, you covered up, the hill for a long time yeah the way that i like to sum up um, a lot of the way that, that Capitol Hill thinks about issues, and, and definitely for police reform right now, the same thing could be said for immigration, for gun control over the last 10 years or so, is it, there's always a debate whether incremental change is enough and whether you're going to make the perfect the enemy of the good. And the, the problem with Congress is that it often does the bare minimum and then wants to move on. And that's always the fear of one party over another, given whatever, whatever moment there is. Maybe there's a, a mass shooting. Maybe there's, um, you know, a really blatant, um, you know, awful police-involved shooting. Um, there always feels like there's a moment, there's a groundswell where, where maybe the stars align for Congress to act. And, and maybe a party that's been dragging their feet on an issue maybe is willing to do something. But I think the fear from the other side is that, you know, you pass something incremental and then the other party will throw up their hands and say, OK, we, we took care of this issue. That's enough. And so I think that's what you're seeing right now. Um, you're seeing Republicans who for a long time opposed anything, any sort of police reform measure. Now there does seem to be some political will, but it's a question of how much Democrats are going to push. And do they push too much to the point that Republicans, especially in the Senate, aren't willing to, to um, move forward? So I think that's where you're seeing the push and pull Let, right now. Let's, get, let's dig into it a little bit. Uh, Patricia, your column, you point out several facts here. One you say that beyond the differences, and we can talk about the differences in a minute, that the two bills, the Senate and House bill, do have important areas of agreement. Both would significantly increase federal data collection and reporting of police misconduct, which importantly is also now part of the, the Georgia legislature's uh, hate, hate crimes uh, bill. It, um, you say that uh, it would uh, give... Uh, Qualify that the both. I'm sorry, I'm I'm getting lost here. Both would significantly increase feta, federal data collection, reporting of police misconduct, tie federal grants to ban chokeholds, and add measures for transparency and accountability. There, I'm back on track. So those are pretty good uh, agreements to to start with, Patricia. Yeah. So so that is what it would be the bare minimum. Um, the House bill um, and the Democratic House goes much further. And it um, on the House side, they change the standard of qualified immunity so that people could sue police officers. Um, it also bans no knock warrants for drug cases. Um, there are multiple changes and more granular changes that would be federalized for all all police precincts. On the Senate side, the bill is being sponsored by Senator Tim Scott, who's the only um, black Republican in the Senate. Um, he adds anti-lynching language, which has passed the House and has been inexplicably stalled in the Senate, um, would make lynching a federal crime. Um, also, he would make falsifying a police report a national crime, federal crime, um, creates a national commission to look at sort of this holistic situation um, from beginning to end from from a policeman's first encounter through and then how it how kind of federal through the entire uh, justice system so and and Tim Scott has been quite outspoken about his own experience being stopped by police and his own experience being stopped even in the capitol by police officers who thought he was impersonating a senator. Um, and so I think he comes to this as a very sincere actor in the conversation. Um, and this is his approach, and he has been supported by Senate leadership 
Um, and there are parts of that bill that Democrats do support, but um, there, the NAACP has come out, and uh, I think they are, to Tamar's point, very concerned about incremental change. If this is your last best chance to get something done, do you really want to get something done? And um, will will Republican senators come to the table and, and uh, make changes or make guarantees on amendments? That what that is what Senator Dick Durbin wants. He wants guarantees on specific amendments that Democrats could vote on. Um, so this is a this is a moving train. Um, the House the Senate will vote likely Wednesday, and the House will vote on Thursday. Tomorrow, I think with debates like this, it's so obvious just to see the the breakdown in trust in Washington between the two parties. I think even 20 years ago, even if there were um, differences between the two parties on an issue like this, maybe because some of these lawmakers might have served a longer period of time, maybe they would have gotten to know socially um, some of these members uh, from the other side of the aisle, maybe there would be more good faith negotiations, or at least a, um, you know, knowing that the other side is negotiating in good faith. But the problem now is that there's been such a breakdown in trust at every level. So even though there, there really is a major agreement to be had, like Patricia said, there's a lot in common between these two proposals uh, because of this election right around the corner, because Democrats don't trust Donald Trump, because Republicans loathe Nancy Pelosi. Um, it's very possible that they walk away from this without doing much of anything. Um, so, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm not, you know, Patricia's column ends talking about how uh, you know, on this issue specifically, there are so many subject matter experts in the Senate in particular who know what they're doing. Um, it's very possible that something could happen. But I just am not optimistic from all my years covering Washington, especially with an election around the corner. But the other side doesn't want to give the other side a, a victory leading into such a critical presidential election. So let's talk about that to close out the show today. And tomorrow you got the ball, so we'll go with you first. Um you know, I think up until the the killing, starting with uh, Ahmaud Arbery, unfortunately, and then George Floyd, I think up until those uh, two awful moments, uh, we all talked about how the pandemic was going to change uh, the uh, dynamic of the 2020 election. Uh, it probably still will have an enormous impact. But, but, but tomorrow... We've only got about two minutes, but but so take 45 seconds on this because I want to give Patricia a chance to. How does the issue of police violence against blacks change the dynamic for both Republicans and Democrats moving ahead to the November elections? Does it change the dynamic? Absolutely, especially on the Democratic side. I think it's really going to change who or who uh, former Vice President Joe Biden picks as his running mate. I think initially he was leaning towards somebody like an Amy Klobuchar, even a Kamala Harris, who both have experience as prosecutors. Now I think that that makes them a little less um, a little less appealing of a candidate. So maybe you see a different vice president come out. Maybe you see Akeisha Lance Bottoms come as a as a vice presidential pick. Yeah. Also, watch Patricia? very carefully. Watch very carefully today. Primary elections in Kentucky and New York. There are there are more liberal challenges to the on the left to some of these Democrats, um, either longtime House members and in Kentucky, Amy McGrath, who was really a a, a, a favorite of Washington Democrats. This may give new life to um, more liberal challengers on the left in the Democratic side, and it could start to have a feel like a tea party on the left and give more energy to that side. So watch it carefully. 
Kentucky primary is going to be fascinating because they're choosing someone to run against Mitch McConnell in the fall. So, yes, we'll watch that very carefully. That's it. We're out of time. Patricia Murphy, Tamar Hallerman, great to have you on the show. We really thank Andrea Young for participating earlier. I'm Bill Nygut. Back with another show tomorrow. Take care. <laughs>